Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. The engine was left running as he went to open the gate to the palatial estate. The next thing he knew... The car was on top of him. He couldn't breathe, feeling hot metal against his body. When police arrived at the scene, they spoke to the woman who, for a moment, was behind the wheel of the car. It was a horrible accident, she insisted. I just got in the driver's seat to pull up when he opened the gate. But was this an accident? This woman was filthy rich and incredibly powerful. And she wasn't just someone that you questioned. She gave the answers. And she might have gotten away with cold-blooded murder. This week, I'll talk about the heiress Doris Duke and the death of Edward Tyrella. I always like to go into the background of the people in the cases that I cover. And in the case of Doris Duke, it's especially important to understand this strange, crazy world that she lived in and came from so you can decide for yourself her guilt or innocence. Because Doris lived a life that most of us can only dream of. Wealth, fame, everything at her fingertips. She always got what she wanted. And the word no was something rarely spoken to her. 
Doris Duke was born on November 22, 1912 in New York City to James Buchanan Duke and his second wife, Nanaline Holt Enman. James Buchanan Duke came from a family that owned some very profitable tobacco businesses. In fact, in 1885, he acquired a license for the very first automatic cigarette-making machine, eventually supplying over 40% of the country's cigarette market. He became a cigarette tycoon when he consolidated several of his competitors to start the American Tobacco Company, which had control over 90% of the tobacco market. The family also had their hands in textiles and electric power companies, so this made him extraordinarily rich. Doris was the only child, so when James died in 1925, she was given most of his estate to split with her mother and the Duke Endowment. This was around 60 to $100 million. Now, that's in 1925 money. In today's money, that would have been a staggering $875 million to $1.458 billion. Doris would have been only around 13 at the time of his death. It's quite a young age to suddenly be bestowed with that much money. On his deathbed, James whispered to his only daughter to trust no one, and that was something that stuck with her forever. Doris grew up at Duke Farms in Hillsborough Township in New Jersey, an estate which covered over 2,000 acres. And in a totally baller move in 1927, Doris sued her mother and other executors of her father's will to prevent any auctions or sales of real estate that her father had owned. See, the will was a bit murky as to who exactly owned what in the real estate that he owned. One notable property was a mansion on Fifth Avenue on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on a place called Millionaire's Row. It would later become the Institute of Fine Arts. When Doris reached the ages of 21, 25, and 30, she was given large bequests from the will, earning her the nickname the world's richest girl. According to Biography.com, when Doris wanted to attend college, her mother forbade it, insisting instead that she go with her on a tour of Europe and presented her daughter as a debutante in London. It appears that the mother and daughter had a somewhat icy relationship. Her mother wanted this traditional society life for her daughter, while Doris wanted, you know, like what most people want, to do her own thing. Around this time, the public had a fascination with Doris and Woolworth heiress Barbara Hutton, referring to the two as the gold dust twins. So I guess they would have been the Depression-era version of Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. Doris was a very statuesque beauty with thin lips and this very serious gaze. She didn't like the limelight, whereas Barbara Hutton adored it. The pair started out as kind of frenemies, eventually stepping that up to arch-rivals. According to one article that I read by Stephanie Mansfield, Doris was jealous of Barbara's beauty, and Barbara publicly called Doris cheap. This was a rivalry that continued throughout their lives. 
At the tender age of 22, Doris shocked the world by marrying James Cromwell, a politician 16 years her senior. They spent their honeymoon traveling the world for two years, as one does when you're rich. And eventually they settled in Hawaii, buying an estate that they called Shangri-La. The relationship seems to have not gone well, some referring to the aspiring politician as a, quote, gold-digging socialite. He left for Canada to work for the government, and she stayed behind in Hawaii. Because Hawaiian life suited her. She adored the people in the atmosphere. And there she became the first non-Hawaiian woman to take up competitive surfing. So still married to Cromwell, she began to have some very public affairs, becoming pregnant at the age of 27, leaving the world to wonder who the father was. She gave birth in 1940 to a little girl named Arden, who tragically died within 24 hours. Due to complications from this birth, Doris was told that she wouldn't be able to have any more children, and the birth father remained a mystery. During World War II, Doris became a foreign correspondent for the International News Service, touring war-torn areas of the world. Fluent in French, she went to Paris and wrote for Harper's Bazaar magazine. In 1943, she officially divorced Cromwell. While in Paris, she met Porfirio Rubirosa, a diplomat from the Dominican Republic, and this guy was a notorious playboy. He'd been romantically linked to Marilyn Monroe, Rita Hayworth, Eartha Kitt, Judy Garland, and Ava Perone. This is just to name a few. Even more notorious than his sexual prowess was the reported size of his penis. Parisian waiters at Maxim's apparently named their giant pepper mills Rubirosas. Supposedly, when Doris fell for him, she paid his second wife, actress Danielle Darrow, $1 million not to contest a divorce. Doris Duke was so wealthy that the American government was worried that a foreign government would gain too much money and power via her new husband in the event of her death, that they drew up a prenup agreement. This is wild. I've never heard of a government getting involved in somebody's prenuptial. Regardless of that prenup, she lavished this man with gifts and money during their year-long marriage. And when they divorced to make matters even worse, guess who his next wife was? It was Barbara Hutton, Dorse's arch nemesis. She never married again, preferring to have instead these various relationships with men like Errol Flynn, General George S. Patton, and conservationist Louis Broomfield. There was one longer relationship of note in her life with a guy named Joe Castro. He was a jazz band leader. The two first met in Hawaii, and it wasn't long before Duke asked the man who was 15 years her junior to live with her at her estate. Her godson, Pony Duke, remembers Doris being jealous of the attention that Castro got, even though she declared he was a musical genius. Her depression, his temper, and both of their use of alcohol and barbiturates did little to help this whole relationship. Evidently, their fights were hellacious. 
One night, Doors came at Joe with a butcher knife, slashing his arm. So he tried to sue her, saying that he couldn't work because of his injury. But as we'll later learn, Doris loved a good lawsuit and her lawyers scared him off. So they continued this weird on-again, off-again relationship until he supposedly broke her jaw one night. After that, she was through with him, finally, depending more and more on her friend and interior designer, Edward Tyrella. Inheriting her father's great business sense, Doris increased her father's fortune many times over. She employed a staff of over 200 people just to look after her five estates, Shangri-La and Honolulu, Falcon Lair and Beverly Hills, two massive apartments in Manhattan, and her 49, 49-room mansion at Rough Point in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, Rough Point is very pivotal to this story since this is where this supposed accident would occur. For the information about Edward Tyrella and the car accident, I read this really spectacular article on Vanity Fair by Peter Lance. He did deep, deep diving on his research and years of it, finding out things that had been kept secret for years. Now, Edward Tyrella was this really interesting guy. He was born as Eduardo Tyrella in New Jersey, where he began as a performer in nightclubs in the 1940s alongside Frank Sinatra. When World War II began, Eduardo joined the Army, earning a Bronze Star for his part in the Battle of the Bulge. And when he returned to the States, he became a milliner at Saks Fifth Avenue. Then he began working more in interior design, as well as working as a Hollywood extra. Both of these jobs had him hobnobbing with stars like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton to Sharon Tate, who became one of his best friends. Taylor and Burton had hired him to design their home in Mexico. Tyrella had two apartments in California, one in Los Angeles and another near Big Sur, which he shared with his boyfriend, Edmund Cara, who was a famous sculptor. But despite his popularity with the celebrities, his bank account did not benefit. All the money he brought in, he immediately spent. One associate said that he was a, quote, lousy businessman. Friends were constantly lending him money. And this was a shame because it was said that if someone wanted him to work for them, that he could have set his own price. Eduardo, known as Edward or Eddie, had met Doris Duke when he did work on her various estates, most notably helping her set up the floral design on the famous Duke Garden. By 1966, he'd worked for Doris for about 10 years, and she'd come to rely on his expertise. But after a decade as working as her artistic curator, he felt that it was time to move on. He had plans to move permanently to the West Coast. The plan was to load all of his stuff in his car, drop them at his family's home in New Jersey, and then to fly off to California. But his boyfriend had warned him that it wasn't so easy to leave Doris Duke. She was famous for her temper, and she probably wouldn't take his leaving lightly. I mean, she once stabbed a lover with a butcher knife. Tyrella was hesitant also, but he needed some dental work done. 
And this last job that he was going to do for her would pay for thousands of dollars that would eventually go into that work. Just to be sure, he consulted a psychic about making the break with Doris. The psychic advised him not to go to Newport. But against his better judgment, he flew into Newport, Rhode Island Airport, where he was met by Doris. It was October 6, 1966, the last day of Edward Tyrella's life. According to Duke staff, Doris and Edward got into a very heated argument, most likely about his plans to leave Duke's employment. Not long after, they got into a station wagon to head off to an appointment. Apparently, she was going to buy some piece of art, and he was advising her on this. And it was worth thousands of dollars. This was something I read that he did all the time for her. Edward was behind the wheel. When he got to the iron gates at the estate's entrance, he got out of the car to unlock them. And this is when, apparently, Doris slid over into the driver's seat, releasing the parking brake and hitting the accelerator. The car went through the gates, smashed a fence across the street, hit a tree, crushing Tyrella under the rear axle. He died almost instantly with massive trauma to his lungs, brain, and spine. This was determined by medical examiner Philip A. McAllister. And funny enough, he agreed that night to become Doris Duke's private doctor. In doing so, he put her into a private room, which kept state investigators from asking her any questions. The death was declared accidental. When questioned as to why he did this, he said it would have been inhumane to make her recall the tragedy so soon. Police didn't get to speak with her until October 9th. This is two days after Edward's death. Can you think of any other crime where someone would have gotten away with not speaking to police for two days? The author of the article, Peter Lance, discovered that there were actually two official statements given by Duke. Both had been missing for decades until a government official heard that he was digging into the case, and he emailed them to Lance. The first interview, dated on October 9th, was a short account. Police Chief Joseph A. Raddus basically summed it up as, quote, an unfortunate accident and case closed. The state attorney general, J. Joseph Nugent, thought that it was wrapped up a little too quickly, so Raddus declared it was still case open. This was when Raddus told Duke's lawyer, Aram Arabian, that to close this case officially, they would need something a little more. And that's when a three-page transcript appeared of a supposed interrogation with Duke. But it was drawn up so poorly that facts like Doris's birthday were wrong in the transcript. But it was enough for Rattus to declare the case closed again. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Peter Lance was able to find another account of the crash and the National Archives involving this Avis Renault car, uh, the owners of the station wagon that crushed Tyrella to death. It was in the words of Doris Duke saying, Edward Tyrella drove the automobile up to 12 to 15 feet from the north gate. I was sitting in the passenger seat. He got out to open the gate, which was locked. I moved over to the driver's seat. I put my left foot on the brake and moved the gear shift lever from park to drive. The car immediately moved forward through the gates and across Bellevue Avenue, where it struck a fence and stopped. I was injured and dazed. I looked around for Mr. Tyrella, and I did not see him. I went back into the house to see if he was there. A man and a woman helped me. That man and woman were Lewis and Judith Thom from Milwaukee. The father and daughter were sightseeing at the time, and Judith was there because she was becoming a Navy nurse. Lance tracked down Judith, who was now retired. She recalls driving down the street and coming upon the accident. She remembers seeing a tall woman in the street, very hysterical, who took off running towards this mansion. Judith followed her inside. Doris seemed to be calling for someone. She then came down the stairs and said that she had, quote, run over Ed. As Lance notes, this contradicts her statement of saying she ran into the house looking for Edward. In this account, she's just flat out stating that she ran him over. Newspaper accounts stated that Doris needed around 30 stitches on her face from the crash and that there was blood streaming down her face. Judith disagreed with this statement, saying there was no blood, maybe just some bruises. This woman was a nurse, so she would know about injuries. What's also noteworthy in this article is what happened eight days later. That's so telling and proof that money can buy you out of any trouble. Doris donated $25,000, which in today's money would be around $100,000, to Cliff Walk. It's a historic area behind the mansions on Newport's shoreline. Also benefiting from this was Newport Hospital, which got a $10,000 donation from Duke. Now, months later, she set up the Newport Restoration Foundation, and this would eventually renovate over 84 colonial-era buildings. Okay, no big deal, you might think, but there's more. Months after the accident, Chief Raddus retired. His replacement was the cop who had questioned Duke about the events of the fateful night on October 6, 1966. Now, it's odd because... The logical replacement for the chief would have been the captain of detectives, not this guy. One of the other cops who had been involved in questioning Doris that night was also promoted to sergeant. So the town was a bit suspicious of all the goings-on and the generous donations. 
Duke refused to settle a court battle with Tyrella's heirs. They were asking for about $200,000 in damages. This is just a drop in the bucket to a woman who made $1 million a week just in interest fees. Eventually, Tyrella's family hit her with a wrongful death suit, aiming for about $1.25 million. Duke testified that she was relying on Edward for any kind of advice concerning buying her estates. He helped her with purchasing art worth millions of dollars, as well as helping her with Duke Gardens. She was so dependent on his help and advice that there was a room in every one of her estates set aside just for him. That gives you an idea into how she would have felt hearing that he wanted to no longer work for her and become independent living in California. Duke was found negligent in Edward Tyrella's death. His five sisters and three brothers only received about $5,000 after all the legal expenses. The worst part for them, they said, was the character assassination of their brother in court by Duke's lawyers. His niece said it was like she killed him twice. Dorse was very litigious and comfortable in the courtroom. Her business manager, Patrick Mon, said it was her foreplay. Obviously, it was because she was involved in around 40 lawsuits. Mon should know since he was involved in one of those lawsuits when he helped write this tell-all about Doris with her godson, Pony Duke. Doris even used FBI agents to intimidate anyone she knew in case they might have contributed stories to these tell-all books or articles. Her staff and ex-staff were terrified of this woman. Perhaps she used these same men to get rid of things that she didn't want around, like the case file for Edward's wrongful death lawsuit. It magically disappeared from the judicial archives, as well as the dossier on the police investigation of the accident, which went missing from the Newport Police Department. So we have contradictory statements, missing documents, out-of-the-blue donations, and some very strange promotions to those and the police department who worked on this case. If this were just an unfortunate accident, why would all these things occur? Why would she feel the need to make donations? Why would people get promoted like this? In fact, when Chief Raddus retired, he was on a salary of around $7,000 a year. And not long after, he somehow had enough money to buy two condominium units in Florida. Raddus adamantly denied any payoffs until his death in 1997. Now, let's get into the accident versus intention theories. There is the theory that it was an accident. According to Duke, Edward was driving, pulled up to the gate, leaving the car in drive, and put on the emergency brake. Doris slid over into the driver's seat to pull the car through the gate, possibly hitting the gas instead of the brake running Edward over. Duke said this was something she'd done a hundred times before. As Lance notes in his article, a lot of cars at that time had parking brakes that had to be engaged with the driver's left foot and were released by pulling it back on it. He found it really hard to believe that Edward would dare to leave the car and drive and turn his back on Doris knowing this crazy temperament that she had. So he found an actual owner's manual of the car at that time. 
the parking brake could only be disengaged by pulling a release lever on the left-hand side of the dashboard by hand. And some models had a signal that would flash if the brake was engaged. So there's no way that she could have accidentally disengaged this brake by accident, as some have suggested. Doris said in a second statement that she put her left foot on the brake and moved the gear from park to drive. If she released that brake, it would have been anything but an accident. The brake was horizontal and the gas pedal was vertical. This is another thing making it certain that they couldn't be confused. On that awful night, an investigator for Rhode Island Registry of Motor Vehicles came onto the scene. So it was about 10 o'clock at night, so he used his flashlight, and he was able to see tire marks in the driveway. By law, he was supposed to question any drivers in an accident. However, he was consistently put off by Duke's lawyers. Finally, he and an associate were able to sit in on this infamous second interview, but they weren't allowed to ask her any questions. He said it was almost like the fix was already in. Even more chilling was something that Edward's brother-in-law, Robert Ai, noticed. By the time that he had driven from New Jersey to the estate, it was very early morning. He saw in the driveway these tire gouges about an inch to two inches deep. And his son remembers his father saying that it was like someone in the car had stomped on the gas and made the impressions in the gravel. Lance was able to locate Edward Tyrella's misfiled autopsy report. It showed the injuries were not consistent with the official theory of the crash. Dorr said he was crushed against the gates, but the pathologist found that all his injuries were to his upper body, with no damage to his legs. The station wagon was about 15 feet from the gates. All the damage that occurred to the gates was below the level of Edward's waist. So why weren't there any injuries to his lower body if her statement were accurate? Eventually, Peter Lance sought out someone he knew from back in the day in Newport as a straight shooter. And that's exactly what you need in this case. This man became chief himself after many years. He knew this man would know the truth. He sought out a man named Fred Newton. Fred told him all about a rookie cop at the scene that night named Edward Angel. Within minutes of the accident, he was there observing a woman in the car, someone underneath, and a Navy nurse who had just rushed up to help. After they got Edward out, he made a sketch of the scene drawing a diagram of what he thought was the point of impact between the subject and the vehicle. Now he concluded, without knowing who Duke or Tyrella were, that Edward had been hit in the street and not in the gate. He thought the woman in the car had hit someone crossing the street. And this was due to skin and blood that he found on the street. Fred Newton believes that Edward went up on the hood of the car before it hit the gate, and he thinks Doris tapped the brakes after blowing the gates open, forcing Edward to roll off the hood. Then he was run over by the car and dragged underneath until the car hit the tree. This would explain why his lower legs weren't damaged. According to Newton's theory, it was a very calculated, cold-blooded, intentional act. He says she would have slid behind the wheel, 
disengaged the parking brake, moved park to drive, and hit the accelerator. When the car hit Edward, he would have rolled onto the hood where he stayed as she drove onto Bellevue Avenue. Then when he fell off the hood, she ran him over. Newton said it appeared from tire marks that she actually steered the car towards him with, quote, tremendous acceleration. And this theory was supported by a senior staff engineer that the reporter consulted at Collision and Injury Dynamics. He concluded from these diagrams that were made that night that Doris Duke hit the accelerator for about three seconds before the car went through the gates. It was clear to him that Edward Tyrella was on the hood, fell, and was run over in the street, not pinned and hit at the gates. He based these findings also on the body damage that Edward suffered and the damage done to the gates. It's apparent that money can't buy you love, but it can buy you out of a possible murder charge. But there's also a little something called karma. In Duke's later years, she became dependent on two odd strangers. One was a woman named Shandy Hefner, whom Doris believed was the reincarnation of her dead daughter, Arden. She even legally adopted this 32-year-old woman in 1988. She also kept the company of an Irishman named Bernard Lafferty. He then became her butler. Hefner's boyfriend, James Burns, worked as Duke's bodyguard. So Duke suffered this series of illnesses and falls, prompting Lafferty to suggest that Hefner and Burns were conspiring against her for a fortune. Doris left her Honolulu estate with Lafferty for the one in Beverly Hills, and she totally broke off her relationship with Shandy Hefner and gave Lafferty total control. So after some disastrous operations, including one that was a horrible facelift that went wrong, these left her wheelchair-bound. Doris then signed her fortune over to Lafferty in April of 1993. After choking on a piece of food at home, she was heavily sedated with painkillers, resulting in her death on October 28, 1993. Lafferty had her cremated without an autopsy. But later, he got his own karma when a California court deemed him unfit to control her charities, which were worth over $1.2 billion, and he died three years later. So that was the story of Doris Duke and the mysterious death of Edward Tyrella. And I know I normally keep my opinion out of these cases, but man, I think she killed this guy for sure. I think she didn't like men leaving her. And she probably felt she had control over Edward Tyrell. It's a shame that justice isn't blind, but can be influenced by who you are and how much money you have. So if you like the podcast, take some time to write a review. Or if you really like it, you can become a Patreon. I just got my first three Patreons of various tiers. So I want to thank you, VIP member Julian. And also thank you, Rebecca, for your generous donation. You are awesome. And Jen M., you guys all rock. I just found out today that you can donate from any country now. It doesn't have to be in U.S. dollars. Also, there's a way that you can donate on ACAST support. Uh, I want to thank John M. for your generous donation. You guys are making it possible to keep it going. 
This is how I can buy new equipment and make the podcast better and better. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, truly. You can also join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. So I want to welcome new members, Tracy, and I'm probably going to butcher your name, Andrew, to the group. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Remember, the podcast is on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks a lot for listening, guys, and catch you next week. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.